Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome here to the London School of Economics and to this LSE Ideas event. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox of LSE Ideas, of which I'm one of the directors. And I'm delighted to welcome our speakers uh, for today. For those of you who don't know, LSE Ideas is the foreign policy think tank of the LSE and has been uh, in, in operation, so to speak, since 2008, therefore for the last 12 years. And one of the things we've always tried to do through LSE Ideas is to engage in what some people would call the real world, to engage with policymakers and to think through some of the big questions of the day. And I don't think anybody would disagree with the argument that one of the biggest questions of the day today, the only question of the day today, is what's going to happen to the world through COVID, what's going to happen to the relationships between states, what's going to happen to the world economy after COVID. There's been many debates about COVID, of course, as you know, US-China, what's going to happen to the world economy, the social impact, the consequence of that. But there hasn't been as much discussion, we feel, about security, what you might call what to do about security. And there hasn't been much debate about NATO, which we're going to look at today in the general context of the transatlantic security uh, partnership and transatlantic security relationship. How much of a threat to that partnership and to that relationship does COVID pose? Now, I've been around a fair amount of time. And one of the two things you can always say about NATO, at least, is A, it's been the most successful alliance in history, but almost annually and every decade, there's been a crisis in that relationship. If you go back to the 1950s, the time of the Suez crisis, go to the Suez period, you go through to the Vietnam period, you go through to the periods of Ronald Reagan. We were told there would be a big crisis in that relationship at the end of the Cold War. The Iraq War of 2003 posed another threat to the relationship. We were told that Barack Obama was more interested in Asia than he was in Europe. And here we are yet again discussing the same question. And I suppose the real one we've been discussing this for many years, indeed throughout the whole history of the alliance and NATO since 1949. The question is, and this is what our three speakers today are going to address, is, is this now for real? Is this the moment where a certain concatenation of pressures and events which will be analysed by our speakers have come together to pose something more fundamental than in the past. I'm absolutely delighted we've got a stellar lineup of speakers today. Uh, Peter Watkins worked with the Department of Defence, who was Director General of the Defence Academy between 2011 and 2014, and is a visiting senior fellow within LSE Ideas. Peter will kick off and speak for about 10 minutes. Then we're followed by General Sir James Everard, who was Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for many years. He's been a serving soldier, I believe, James, since 1983. And last but by no means least, my old friend, uh, Natalie Tocci, who's Deputy Director of the Instituto Affari Italiano and uh, was, of course, a key advisor to Federica Mogherini. And I'm also pleased to say did her PhD at the London School of economics. Each will speak for about uh, 10 minutes, as I say, and then we'll hand over for Q&A. Final point, just on business, you could look at hashtag LSE COVID-19. 
the event is being recorded. There will be a podcast. And of course, there will be a question and answer to follow. We hope we'll engage in a really good question and answer after the, after these three great presentations. So, Peter, I'm going to hand it over to you now to kick off on the great debate we're going to have here on transatlantic security in the age of COVID. Peter, over to you. So thank you very much, uh, Mick, and thank you for inviting me to take part in this uh, in this webinar. Um, as you mentioned, I wasn't until recently a senior official in the Ministry of Defence, so I do need to make it clear that today I'm speaking in a strictly personal capacity. Um, as you said, I mean, since the coronavirus pandemic took hold, there has been what sometimes feels like an endless discussion of its impact on geopolitics and geoeconomics. There seems to be emerging a broad consensus from those discussions that the pandemic will exacerbate existing trends or trends that were already apparent to a greater extent than it will initiate new ones. So some of those trends included things like um, I'll put it this way, greater caution on globalization, including some rebalancing of supply chains, as we discussed in a previous ideas webinar, uh, growing pressures within the European Union, and a growing tension between the West, and specifically the United States and China, both in trade and in the Indo-Pacific region. But as you said, there's been rather less focus on its possible impact on the security of our own backyard, the Euro-Atlantic area. And at the heart of the Euro of Euro-Atlantic security is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, established by the Treaty of Washington in 1949, and now it's worth recalling with 30 members. And whether you are one of those members, and thus, like the United Kingdom, see NATO as the cornerstone, in inverted commas, of your national defense, or one of its detractors, you don't dispute NATO's centrality. For most Euro-Atlantic countries, including some non-members, it's seen as a defensive bulwark. But for at least one country, Russia, it's seen potentially as an offensive bridgehead. As you noted, as Mick noted, at different points in its history, and again very recently, um, in the last few years, uh, with uh, comments attributed to President-elect Trump and then uh, President Macron's comment uh, last November to The Economist that NATO was brain dead. At various points, NATO has been described as facing some sort of existential crisis. But just because it has survived those previous crises doesn't mean that today's challenges are not very real. If this coronavirus pandemic has taught us anything, isn't it the folly of taking false comfort from what our colleagues in the health and safety world would call the near misses of the past? I mean, those challenges, I mean, we all know what they were. I'm not going to go through them in, in great detail because I'd like to talk about uh, what NATO might do about them. But obviously, there are the um, pressures within the uh, transatlantic uh, relationship. Uh, sense that the United States is looking increasingly to the Indo-Pacific and is um, increasingly frustrated that European allies are not making a bigger contribution to their uh, security. There's the China 
uh, angle. I mean, obviously, China is part of that emerging picture in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, but also, China is increasingly active within Europe, uh, developing relations uh, with certain European countries, um, which are having some impact on the uh, cohesion of the European Union, if not on, on, on NATO. And of course, there are growing signs of some sort of uh, entente, I wouldn't say an alliance, between uh, Russia and China. And then finally, there are technologies, which are um, technology implications, again, many of which um, have roots back into China, but which um, present a big challenge. Um, on the China dilemma, since I've raised it a couple of times, um, I mean, some commentators do suggest that this could really be quite sharp. I mean, for example, Steve Walt argued the other day that as US-Sino competition warms up, the European members of NATO cannot remain neutral and expect the US to continue to underwrite European security. They can't just sit on the sidelines. I mean, since we're unlikely to see the European bloc taking sides on bloc with China, we could see that European bloc within NATO fracture with obviously severe implications for the alliance. Personally, I don't think the choice needs to be quite so stark, um, but others will have other views. So back in December, um, which now seems like a different world, um, NATO heads of state and government met in a NATO summit in London. And uh, in their communique, they said, quote, Taking note of the evolving strategic environment, they commissioned a forward-looking reflection process to further strengthen NATO's political dimension, unquote. So in the face of what may be not just a normal existential non-crisis, what should the alliance now be considering? And I'd like to focus on four aspects which I think need some attention. I mean, first of all, the European dimension. As defence budgets have risen, the last few years have seen a tangible, if so far quite modest, strengthening of European capabilities. But this process, in my view, needs a new political narrative. Certain current narratives, such as building European strategic autonomy and or needing to hedge against US disengagement, are in my view deeply divisive or worse risk being self-fulfilling prophecies. And I'd like to suggest that we develop a new nar narrative um, building on two lesser known articles of um, the Washington Treaty. And they are Article 3, which talks about, quote, continuous and effective self-help and mutual aid to maintain and develop the party's individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack. And Article 2, which interestingly talks of, quote, encouraging economic collaboration between any or all of the parties. I think in developing that new narrative, we could bridge the gap between those such as President Macron arguing for an avant-garde to create a European security community, and the more Atlanticist reflexes of the United Kingdom and the Central and Eastern European states, notably Poland and Romania. And I believe that the UK could actually play a key constructive role um, in brokering the necessary compromises by being pragmatic and encouraging others to be so too.
In effect, we, the UK, would trade the emergence of more institutional baggage in Brussels, as we see it, even an EU operational headquarters for a more capable European pillar of NATO. Secondly, the transatlantic bond. I think we just have to start by recognizing that the character of this is changing. The continued, indeed recently reinforced presence of US forces in Europe provides reassurance of the US's stalwart commitment to European security. But that commitment can no longer be taken for granted in the way that it once was. And this isn't just that certain things have been said in the recent past that cannot now be unsaid. <clears throat> it's more structural than that. The US's democracy and thus its perception of Europe is changing. So in my view, the credibility of NATO's deterrence posture needs to become less dependent on U US participation which obviously means that the Europeans and the, and the Canadians must invest more in capabilities and, and I would underline the and, in developing the strategic culture to use them decisively if required. And in my view, they don't necessarily need to choose between the US and China. They need to recognize that China is not only a systemic threat as described last year by the European U Union, but also now a potentially strategic one. Thirdly, cohesion. Often described as NATO's center of gravity, this has withstood considerable strain in recent years, given allies' widely diverging views of the relative importance of the threat from Russia and that of migration and so on from North Africa and the Middle East. The China factor will exacerbate that strain, as will growing tensions in the South, including between Turkey and Greece and Cyprus, as well as Turkey's apparent flirting with Russia. NATO has very successfully bolstered its position in the North. But I would argue that for political as much as military reasons, it now needs to invest a lot more in the South, and particularly the Southeastern Quadrant. Again, I think the UK can play a key role here, because it's actually the most multidimensional of the European powers. While its standing as a Northern power is undisputed, it also has a strategic interest in Cyprus and the Mediterranean sea lines of communication, a positive image in Turkey, and a deepening, deepening bilateral defense relationship with Romania. And then fourthly, new technologies. It's widely recognized that the new technologies such as hypersonic systems, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, pose a challenge to NATO's established concepts and doctrines not least because of the dramatic reduction in potential warning time that they could allow. NATO has not, I would argue, been in this position before. It was a child of the early years of the nuclear age and usually describes itself as a nuclear alliance. And later technological developments, such as precision guided weapons, rather went with NATO's political grain. So it's easier said than done, but I think NATO needs to work through the political implications of the growing military application of these technologies by adversaries and allies and partners alike, develop a new narrative and provide revised political guidance to NATO's military capabilities community. So, of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but I have no doubt that even with its various eccentricities, NATO is a very good thing, and it's in our collective interest to ensure that it continues to anchor 
the security and stability of the Euro-Atlantic area. But to do so, and this is a British uh, strain, to do so, it must continue to adapt. And as it has done in the past, face up to the challenges, not retreat from them. Thanks very much. Many points to discuss and debate, and I'm sure we're going to do that uh, in the Q&A. But before we do that, I'll hand over straight away to James to continue the conversation. James, over to you. Uh, thank you, Mick. Um, the doomsday clock started ticking in 1947 on the 23rd of January this year. It moved 20 seconds closer to midnight, leaving us just 100 seconds short of Armageddon. Uh, and I don't think this is uh, surprising. We've already been bitten by 10 strategic shocks and aftershocks uh, this century, all with continuing uh, uh, impact. Uh, COVID-19 is just the latest and it will not be uh, the last. And so I think it is the aggregate of all these shocks uh, that we now need to determine in terms of their impact on Euro-Atlantic security at a time, and to quote from the uh, 2020 Doomsday Clock statement, that the international political infrastructure for managing these crises has uh, eroded. Now, I could go through a long list of what to expect. I think Pete has already mentioned many. For example, the US will face uh, additional global pressures and there will be renewed calls for Europeans to do more to defend themselves, just as their ability to do so is undermined by falling defence spending. But if we look for one certainty, uh, perhaps it's a truism because I think it tells us nothing new. It is that no single nation has the mass, uh, the muscle, the money or the motivation uh, to deal with these challenges, all these challengers uh, alone. Uh, so what to do uh, in an interconnected world, isolationism and or ostracism, with my thanks to Little Heart, Defence of the West, 1950, does not work. Uh, the only solution, and certainly central, I think, for a viable vision for global Britain is to work in cooperation and collaboration with allies, with partners, and the wisdom of crowds, joint interagency and international, as part of a Euro-Atlantic and perhaps even global network bound together by common interest, shared values, and trust. And so with that in mind, I'd just like to make four points. Firstly, when it comes to collaboration, investing in existing structures is far easier and more productive than building new ones. If the common security and defence policy and the EU global strategy is your answer, then I think we're in trouble given the extent of the known capability shortfalls in Europe and the priority afforded to defence in the European uh, firmament. Um, strategic autonomy without strategic enablers is uh, a mirage. Perhaps cooperative autonomy is a better target. But while we ponder this, we should remember that NATO is a working alliance bound together by history, values and uh, goals underpinned by a treaty that is uh, a genuine model of brevity and clarity. It gives the Europe, uh, Americans a seat uh, at the European security table, which they very much uh, like and has kept the peace in the Euro-Atlantic area for 71 years uh, plus. And indeed, again, as Peter said, NATO has been an extraordinary instrument for building common purpose between allies and remains an essential part of, of the political catch-catcher for resolving uh, crisis. 
Uh, and again, as Mick said, all of you will have been present uh, at the death of NATO several times. And yet it lives on because NATO has always, when needs must, evolved to overcome the sometimes contradictory perspectives and interests of allies. Uh, point two. Since 2014, uh, NATO has reset and it has delivered, as it was asked to do by the Allies, a strengthened deterrence and defence posture uh, within the NATO AOR and an enhanced uh, capacity to project stability uh, beyond European borders. However, the incremental approach adopted by the Alliance meant that the coherence of the overall construct had to be validated retrospectively. Uh, this is hard. We needed a better approach. Uh, I think that brought coherence to all the things that had been done since 2014 and all the things that we wanted to do from 2020 uh, onwards uh, in order to uh, better safeguard the freedoms and security of the alliance. And I think to this end, it's worth noting that NATO's military strategy uh, approved in 2019 and the concept for the deterrence and defence of the Euro-Atlantic area DDA for short, which will be with defence ministers in June this year, uh, having cleared the military committee and CHODs uh, this year, moves, if approved, NATO away from the post-Cold War reactive crisis uh, response model to a much more proactive approach that recognises that we uh, operate in a strategic environment characterised by long-term strategic competition pervasive instability and uh, strategic shocks. I think the pragmatist should welcome DDA, not just because it prioritises operational purposefulness, emphasising steady state vigilance, uh, vigilance in multiple warfare domains and in multiple geographic areas, but also because DDA integrates alliance collective defence and crisis response experiences aligns with geostrategic realities of the alliance uh, and is inherently flexible. Uh, and by that, I mean the model could be uh, applied to countries like China if this is uh, what is judged to be appropriate by uh, the alliance. It also conforms, I think, to the modern uh, military characteristics of modern defence uh, operations. Uh, point uh, three. However, there is a narrative that dismisses NATO, I think, as analogue, as unproductive, out of touch, and uh, less than the sum of its parts. Divided, uh, with too many reluctant allies, obsessed with the threat from the East, all mass and heavy metal, when the zeitgeist is all about winning to the left of conflict by harvesting the power of emerging and disruptive uh, technologies. Uh, I think, firstly, we should remember that NATO is what the Alliance uh, wants it to be, and we should not blame uh, NATO, our own creation, for its own inadequacies. Yes, NATO is imperfect and not immune to the trend lines that are shaping Europe and indeed the 21st century. But NATO and NATO plus partners has evolved. And I think through constant consultation, uh, NATO has agreed that the most serious uh, and growing geopolitical threat is generated by Russia. It has agreed that terrorism uh, poses the most immediate asymmetric and transnational threat uh, to NATO. And given these challenges, NATO is the lodestar for modern deterrence uh, and defence, I think to be improved further with implementation of uh, DDA. And this to be delivered by the Joint Force Plus. 
um, why the joint force plus? Well, I think we can do uh, amazing things with the wizardry of emerging and disruptive technologies. Uh, we can do more, but not yet at scale, not yet at tempo, not yet in time, and not yet in a way that produces the effects that we desire, we can control, or indeed that we can articulate. For example, we know that the digital domain, sorry, that in the digital domain, operators have real difficulty in responding to battlefield events and even less success in shaping them. And this lack of a narrative, this inability to explain how we win to the left of conflict uh, within the laws of the armed, conf of armed conflict is, I think, a big problem for the radical advocates of uh, change. And until we can describe a modern manoeuvre in a way that allows us all to visualise it, you know, how it works, uh, then we need to maintain a balanced force, bridging over time to new ways of warfare when the theory passes the test of reality. Uh, as an aside, I think I'd also argue that we have not yet thought through the ethics of emerging and disruptive technologies uh, and their use to ensure that we avoid uh, moral failure. So we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think unless you're prepared to accept significant uh, risk, incantation is not enough. And for now, the only true power is joint power, supported by EDT, uh, with the balance shifting over time. So for now, emerging disruptive technologies are the plus, uh, not the answer. Point four, uh, the UK would say that we place NATO at the heart of UK defence. And I think given our stated objective to be the leading European contributor and most influential European member in NATO, this is sensible. But in reality, uh, our leadership in NATO, and we're no different from anybody else, is uh, episodic. Uh, I think if the alliance is going to be more than some of the parts, it needs to be led not by the international staff, but by the nations. And the UK, I think, is one of very few nations with the manners, with the kahunas, to encourage others to be bold and lead in word and deed, particularly working with like-minded allies such as Romania or the UK Jeff uh, nations, and taking, for example, and leading, for example, on the implementation of DDA and the related response force. And here, I think, lies real strength, coherence, and credibility. Um, let me end. Uh, Dolly Parton tells us in her song, Tennessee Homesick Blues, released in 1984, that it's very difficult to be a diamond in a rhinestone world. It is, but I think NATO could and should be strutting like a peacock given our collective strengths, but only if we can remember that we cannot act in isolation, we embrace and we invest in NATO and truly work to set NATO for the challenges it faces. And I think this would include, uh, as a starter, better educating our electorates on the true nature of the threat, hybrid conventional uh, nuclear, because many, I think, have forgotten that the true price of freedom is eternal uh, vigilance and will be further distracted by COVID. Uh, 19. Uh, to come back to the UK, I do think with a strong UK lead in NATO, we could also initiate a better debate on what it takes to win uh, in the 21st century, uh, placing the UK once again at the heart of the global conversation on security uh, and defence. Thank you, Mick. Thank you very much, James. It's the first time I've heard Dolly Parton quoted in a talk on, uh, on NATO, but uh, wonderful. And but last but by no means least, my good friend Natalie Tocci from Italy. We look forward to what you have to say, Natalie. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. Um, 
So in order to make a few reflections about the impact of COVID-19 on, on European security and defence, I think it may be worth taking a step back and looking at what the situation was like pre-COVID-19 to sort of understand what, what the baseline for the dis this discussion actually is. Um, now, you know, I think if we kind of rewind back four or five years, what uh, we saw was a growing momentum on European security and defence, both in the context of NATO and in the context of the European Union, uh, for fairly obvious reasons, meaning uh, insecurity was on the rise and there was a growing question mark whether there would be someone else, read the United States, that would be dealing uh, with that uh, growing insecurity, particularly as far as the region surrounding uh, Europe and Europe itself uh, were concerned. To make the most obvious uh, example, uh, Libya, uh, increasingly clear, and here I speak as uh, an Italian and as a European, that uh, we would have loved to see more United States uh, in Libya in recent years, but the United States has been telling us very, very clearly that actually this is not on their cards. And this is something that is structural in nature. I don't think it's something that is dependent upon who is actually sitting in, in the White House. So you kind of add these two things together, and I think this largely explains why it is, even if we have obviously different uh, security uh, threat perceptions, uh, why there was this growing momentum on, on security and defense in Europe, which of course took different forms. It took the form of growing defense budgets. It took the form in an EU context of a sort of plethora of um, weird acronyms uh, that uh, were essentially there, you know, CARD, PESCO, the European Defense Fund, uh, the MPCC, that regardless of their specific value, on a whole were aimed at essentially creating, and I think this is a fundamental point, the institutional, the legal, and above all, the financial incentives for Europeans to assume more responsibility on security and defense and to do so collectively. Why collectively? Well, for exactly the reasons that James was highlighting, meaning that uh, Europeans taken alone do not have the mass, the muscle, uh, or what was your last one, or the money uh, to do things independently. And this is ultimately what this whole story was, was all about. One can then sort of debate the relative value, as I said, of different initiatives, but I think taken collectively, this was the story that was behind them. And, and this is why I am far less uh, sort of negative than uh, Peter, for example, is concerning the word autonomy. Uh, I think ultimately autonomy means autonomy. It does not mean autarky. It does not mean independence. It means autonomy. And if we go back to the Greek etymology of the word, autonomos, so the ability of the self to live by its own laws. And those laws are domestic, they're European, and they're international. And given that there are a number of actors that try and interfere with our domestic, European, and international uh, laws, rules, and, uh, and norms, um, the whole point about autonomy is acquiring the capability of essentially standing up uh, to those sources of, of interference. And this is why ultimately, uh, and, and, and then I come to the sort of uh, the, 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 the specific Trump angle to this, this was something that was done and was always conceived very much in a transatlantic perspective. It was essentially the European response 
to a demand that had actually been mounting in the United States for a number of years, precisely about the need for Europeans to assume greater responsibility on security and defense. Now, very clearly, it did not go down well with the Trump administration. And, and here I do think we need to make the fundamental distinction between Trump's America and the United States to court. I think had there been anyone else sitting in the White House, there probably would have been, as there always has been, a debate about exactly how are we going to uh, elaborate a European defense fund and the extent to which we should not, in, you know, we should ensure that this is not uh, protectionist in nature. But it would have been a debate about the fine tuning of it, not about the fundamental rationale uh, of these initiatives. It would not have been, th these initiatives would not have been viewed as essentially deep down nothing really to do with defense strictly speaking but basically a way of rebalancing a trade imbalance because this is very much the way in which the trump administration has actually been uh, looking at these things and obviously if one talks such fundamentally different languages it's very very difficult to get to a point of agreement because the overall objective is not shared and I think this is a reality with the Trump administration which would not have been the case had there been anyone else as I said uh, sitting sitting in the White House now I think this was basically the momentum up until I would say more or less a year year and a half ago uh, and then I think that we shouldn't uh, deny the fact that that momentum had actually started sagging. Uh, I think that already if we rewind back one year from now, uh, the push that had existed on European security and defense, which, by the way, had also explained why EU-NATO relations had never been so strong, in a sense, proving wrong all of those that for years had basically said that doing one uh, would go to the detriment of the other. And this, I, I think, basically the experience of the last five years proved that actually this was plain wrong. Um, but, but I think having said all this, it's also worth highlighting the fact that um, indeed over the last year, that momentum had started uh, uh, sagging, I think, for, for a number of essentially political reasons. And above all, because um, as crises continued in our backyard, it became more and more obvious that quite, uh, you know, on top of the need for capabilities, which of course is sacrosanct, there is also the need of something uh, equally important, which uh, also my co-panelists have mentioned, which is basically a strategic culture aimed at actually doing something about this. So again, if I can go back to the Libya example, um, doing something on Libya today, I'm not talking 2011, today, doing something on Libya actually does not require capabilities that are fundamentally different from the ones that we already have. What we don't have, and I'm not, here I'm not talking about an EU context, I'm talking about a European context, uh, is the will to actually use them. Uh, and, and this is something that I think had started dampening that momentum over the last year. Now, on top of this, so already in a situation that had started becoming more unfavorable than it was over the last four or five years, then we get COVID-19. And COVID-19, I think, um, in many respects, as in some areas, it tends to accelerate existing dynamics, uh, and in other areas, it tends to oppose existing dynamics. And I think when it comes to security and defense, it actually does both at the same time. 
So it exacerbates existing dynamics because, of course, it reduces even further the momentum on European security and defense. Uh, and this is, I think, a risk that for us that are obviously passionate about this subject is something that we need to very much think about and work on in order to try and do what we can to, to reverse it. It is very clear that facing uh, the worst uh, re recession stroke depression uh, since the 1920s, the priority in the coming years, even if it perhaps should be security and defense, will not be security and defense. Huh? It, it is going to be about health. It's going to be about unemployment. Uh, it will probably not be about defense industry. Uh, and this is, I think, something that unfortunately we need to uh, bear in mind. Now, this, of course, is, is there you know, as a risk in the background. On the other hand, you have basically the underlying logic of autonomy in the way in which I interpreted it, uh, meaning not autarky and not independence, actually becoming, the, the logic of it becoming even stronger uh, in a world in which the US-China rivalry goes beyond a rivalry and actually starts sort of uh, uh, edging closer towards conflictuality. Uh, not because it is a question of uh, Europeans not wanting to choose between uh, Trump and Xi. Uh, in a sense, there isn't really much of a choice to be made. Uh, we know where our values are, we know where our alliances are. But in order to contribute to a world in with greater conflictuality, we need to have the ability to better stand up to our domestic, European and international laws, rules and, uh, and values. Um, so again, going back to the, the, the ultimate sense of what autonomy is, is all about. Um, so in, in a sense, the logic for autonomy and therefore applied to security and defense, the strategic autonomy becomes more important now. Uh, the resources uh, risk becoming less. And so the question really is how to, to square the circle. Uh, and, and here, let me end perhaps on the transatlantic, going back to the transatlantic bit uh, of the story, where obviously sort of looking at events over the last weeks and months and indeed years, it is not a pretty picture, <laughs> let's face it. But I think actually thinking through what the structural implications of COVID-19 may be, I think that uh, for reasons that are actually not related to security and defense, but they're broader than security and defense, they recreate a potential for a transatlantic convergence. Now, if it's true, and this is the last point I'll make, if it's true that globalization is going to change in nature, that supply chains are going to shorten, uh, that we will need greater redundancies in our international economic systems, uh, then we can imagine that globalization is going to become more regionalized in nature. And with a globalization which is more regionalized in nature, the question is, what are our reference points when it comes to regions? And I think in our parts of the world, well, obviously, there's a strictly European dimension of what a region is. Uh, but I think if you look at the density, at the thickness uh, of exchanges across the transatlantic space, I think that that space actually is transatlantic in nature. So I think in a post-COVID world, there is a structural uh, uh, push, actually, for a reconvergence across the Atlantic. There where in the last, over the last decade, there had actually been a structural push for a drift uh, uh, between uh, the, uh, the two sides of the Atlantic. But of course, it is not only structure, it is also agency that uh, counts. And therefore, the, the sort of premise to all this, I mean, seizing this 
structural potential will obviously require leaders and leadership that are willing to seize it. And of course, um, I think on the European side of this uh, of this table, uh, that willingness is there. But of course, it takes two to tango. So I think a lot will. Uh, let me end with this rather sort of banal point: will depend on what happens in November this year in the United States. And I'll end there. Okay. Thank you very much, Natalie. I'm, I, I've got a lot of questions lined up already, by the way, and I'm going to go on to those as quickly as possible, but I'll slightly abuse the, the privilege of being chair and ask you this, the, what I call the Sherlock Holmes question about the dog that did not bark in any of your presentations. Not much there about Russia. Uh, and I wonder if each of you could reflect a little bit on Russia. We Everybody talks about the rise of China, obviously, and the degree to which that poses a systemic threat, to quote the EU. Could, could you each reflect briefly on how you think Russia figures into this? Is it, is it the cement that in the end will either unite the alliance or is it the divider that will further divide the alliance or, or is it a bit of both? Uh, Peter, do you mind just kicking off on that one just to kind of get the debate going? And then we'll move over to some of the questions I've already got in, in front of me. Quite a lot, by the way. Peter. Well, as I said in, in my remarks, I mean, there are differing views across the NATO members of Russia. Um, and, you know, one or two countries don't really see Russia as a threat at all, whereas others see it as a, a sort of, you know, deep and present danger. Um, but the alliance, you know, in its in its way, has always been able to um, reach a consensus. And in a series of uh, summits, it has taken some quite far-reaching steps. I mean, James alluded to them to um, reinforce uh, deterrence against uh, Russia. So, where does Russia play in all this? Well, as as James said, I mean, in in my view, and I think it's the, it's still the British government's view that. Uh, Russia is the most direct threat to Euro-Atlantic security. And it is for the very obvious reason that back in 2014, it did something in the Euro-Atlantic area that hadn't happened uh, since the end of the Second World War, which was to change a border by force. And its subsequent behavior, um, you know, increased people's concerns. So I think, you know, Russia is going to be there as, as, um, as that threat. Um, it'll be interesting to see what impact COVID-19 has on Russia. I mean, it's, it's one of the hardest uh, hit countries um, and, you know, quite distracted at the moment by uh, the pandemic. The worry, of course, is that that uh, crisis um, coincides with what one might describe as another sort of crisis in Russia, which is about its long-term leadership. So, Although I don't subscribe to rather simplistic notions of countries sort of inventing wars in order to um, distract attention from problems at home, I don't think one can, I don't think it would be prudent for the Europeans to dismiss the possibility of some sort of Russian opportunism or whatever uh, over the coming years. That one as well, please. Britain product is very careful to talk about NATO at 360. It doesn't prioritise north, south, uh, east uh, or west. Uh, clearly, Russia is the glue that holds together the B9 plus those people who uh, believe that Russia is a genuine threat, as the alliance has agreed uh, it is. And I think I agree, Peter. I mean, Russia has behaved badly 
I Krim or onwards. I think it's very interesting seeing the disinformation that came out from Russia during the COVID uh, crisis. I mean, it was almost instinctive. You, you, you can't believe it was planned. It's just their natural uh, reaction. But I think, uh, you know, uh, Russia, unless it comes back into the international fold, is going to remain uh, a glue for NATO. Uh, and those in the South that worry about the South, yes, we need to do more there to balance their concerns. But they reckon within the alliance uh, that they have to, to share that threat. OK, thanks, uh, James. And uh, Natalie, what, what are your, what are your, what's your take on that? Please. I think, let me be very un-Italian about this. Um, <laughs> I actually think that, um, well, firstly, I think that actually Russia is becoming increasingly uh, an area in which we tend to, I mean, obviously there are still differences, but the disagreements are actually reducing rather than increasing. Uh, I think in general, the way in which um, Europeans view Russia is far, I mean, beginning by those that uh, have in the past tended to be rather soft on Russia, they're far less starry-eyed today than they were four, five, six, seven years ago. So I think there is, there is movement. Uh, and I actually think that um, it will become increasingly the case if, at the global level, we have a US-China confrontation on the one hand. Uh, if uh, the transatlantic bit of the equation uh, is actually going to remain or become perhaps even stronger than it was, so it was over the last years, uh, and if on the other side, uh, the China-Russia relationship uh, strengthens uh, even further. Uh, so if that is the world that we're moving towards, mm. my suspicion is that not only are we going to continue being less starry-eyed about Russia than we have been recently, but that actually this is going to continue to be um, number one concern for NATO. I actually disagree with James on this. I don't think that NATO should be doing more to the South. Uh, I think that this is a knee-jerk instinct that... Um, you know, countries like my own that are rightfully very concerned about the South. And I think there is a legitimate question about, in general, us, us Europeans, us in the transatlantic space doing more than in the South. I don't think that NATO is the appropriate institutional framework to do so. Uh, I actually think that when it comes to the South, there is far more that, that you could be doing uh, in the South rather than uh, the NATO. I think NATO should be doing what NATO is good at. And what NATO is good at is deterrence. Uh, and deterrence is something that one does thinking Russia, <laughs> not thinking anti-terrorism. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's that actually rather nicely and coincidentally segues into a question I'm going to pick up uh, from Aaron who asked the question about Russia and China together in the Balkans, which was, again, not touched on very much. And what should or could or can NATO do about Russia and China together or separately in the Balkans? Anybody want to pick up on that one to kick off, maybe? Natalie, do you want to have a go at that one? And then I'll bring back in James and Peter. Yeah? I actually think that the Russia and uh, China uh, story in the Balkans um, is overinflated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very clear that uh, this is a card that some leaders in the Balkans are uh, playing up. Uh, you know, it has, was very clear the way in which uh, President Vucic in Serbia uh, tried to do it. 
uh, particularly in reference to, to China, uh, less so Russia. Um, but again, you know, going back to the points that I was making about globalization earlier, you know, if globalization is going to become more regionalized, actually, we may end up seeing less China in Europe and less China in the Balkans and perhaps even less China in Africa than what we have done in the last decade uh, and perhaps more China in Asia. Um, so, you know, I think, frankly speaking, when it comes to the Balkans, uh, what we should be doing, be it in a NATO framework or in an EU framework or in a bilateral framework, should not be dictated by our fear of what others may be doing. What we should be doing is what we should be doing in a region which is with and of our region, and there is no escaping geography. Mm. I'll... I, 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 I... I'll bring James and Peter in later on if they want to come up back to that, but it also raises another question. This is largely to the two Brits. Uh, you may be un-Italian, Natalie, but you're not a Brit at the moment, uh, honorary or otherwise. But there's a question here, to, which I think is one for you, James, and one for you, Peter. You talked about UK leadership and role, but what about France? And doesn't France have a much greater claim to leading Europe rather than the UK? And, and it also segues into another question which has been asked about well, given that the UK has left the Union now, doesn't that also limit its leverage in terms of debates on security generally, when not only on the transatlantic, but within Europe itself? Peter, do you want to have a go at that first, and then I'll bring in James. Peter? Yeah. <clears throat> Can I just close off on the Balkans? Yeah, please, yeah, um, sure. I mean, it's actually me that said that uh, NATO should do more in the southeast, and... Mm. I wasn't really thinking of terrorism and all that. I was thinking um, more in terms of um, the fact that the Russian threat is increasingly in the South. Uh, it's not just in the North. Um, I mean, both James and I have mentioned Romania a couple of times. You know, talk to our Romanian friends about what's going mm. on in the Black Sea or look at what the Russians have been doing in the Eastern Mediterranean around Cyprus. Mm. So that's why um, I um, said that NATO should do more there. Um, you know, we could be here for the rest of the day debating about NATO's role on terrorism. Personally, I think NATO should have a role in counterterrorism, but um, that's that. Um, but I also agree with um, Natalie that you know the Balkans are important in their own right. I mean, we don't, we shouldn't be um, concerning ourselves about the Balkans just because we're worried about Russia and China. We mm. should be worried about the fact that there is a part of Europe which is still quite unstable and which contains a number of NATO members. I mean, probably more NATO members than EU members now. Um, <clears throat> on the other question, um, I don't think um, I would argue that the UK should be, as it were, trying to set itself up, you know, as the leader in chief in front of everybody else. I mean, in practice, of course, we are going to work extremely closely um, with um, France in particular, with whom we have a treaty and we celebrate its 10th anniversary this year, but also with Germany, uh, with whom we have uh, recently signed uh, agreements to cooperate more closely. So I don't, I don't see it as a sort of, you know, um, you know, more Britain and less France and more Britain and less Germany. I mean, quite the opposite. I think there should be more of all of us. Um, so, um, as I said, I think, I think it's, a, I wouldn't say it's a collective leadership, because I know that goes down, back, down extremely badly, but um, uh, we can do more um, working with mm -hmm. others. And I think we also had a very close relationship with uh, Italy as well. 
On the question of Brexit and how much difference does it make, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to try and argue that it's increased uh, British influence uh, <laughs> in continental Europe. Um, um, I think so far um, we have managed to persuade our continental friends that the British referendum was a very different event than, say, the election of Donald Trump. Um, it was not Britain sort of becoming isolationist or walking away from its responsibilities uh, in Europe. Indeed, you know, right from September 2016, you know, ministers, starting with Michael Fallon and others, were saying that the referendum results did not change or reduce in any way Britain's uh, contribution contribution and commitment to European security. And we've spent quite a lot of the time since actually reinforcing our defence links uh, on a bilateral and multilateral basis uh, with many of our continental partners. And James mentioned the joint expeditionary. So I think we do still have influence. I think we can provide, um, and I know people hate it when we say this, we can provide some thought leadership because we think about all these things a lot. And we also, um, you know, despite the declinist narrative of, um, you know, British defence spending and so on, we have a number of capabilities which are, if they may not be unique, but they are certainly unusual uh, in among European powers. I mean, aircraft carriers being one of them. So uh, I shouldn't, we, don't, we shouldn't do ourselves down, in my view. James, I'm aware you've not said what. No, I, 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 well, just quickly on the uh, on the Balkans. I mean, it is a a region of competition between NATO and uh, Russia in particular. But this isn't like the Black Sea region or the Baltic. This isn't planes and ships. This is more to do with uh, influence, uh, and NATO has a pretty strong footprint across the Balkans. Uh, and are engaged heavily in capacity building and support to uh, allies and partners. And I think that goes uh, pretty well. In terms of France, uh, UK, it's very interesting. I mean, you don't get the sense ever that the UK and the French like sharing the duvet. I mean, they, they, they don't. But if they speak as one in NATO, you virtually always carry the day. And so it comes to my point, I think, you know, when I say UK have to lead, I mean, UK have to lead and they have to take people like France with them. Otherwise, they won't. Uh, get anywhere. Uh, and, and when you look at practical things, I mean, you know, uh, and I think there's a debate and we need to work out the percentages because it fluctuates, but somewhere between 65 and 80% of the combat power in NATO will be sitting with non-EU members. Uh, and so, uh, again, I think the UK voice, uh, and as Peter says, there are some unique capabilities that we have with others uh, like, and I wouldn't play down the French leadership role in, in NATO, really. They have the supreme Allied Commander Transformation, they have the vice at, at shape, so they play a good role already. And in general terms, you think, and the question has been asked by one or two of our uh, people here, about the long-term future strategic influence. Quite a lot of the questions that are coming out are quite pessimistic about that, James, rather than optimistic, which seem to be more you and, uh, if, I might, if I might suggest. So I think for, you talk about UK influence here. Yes, yes, yes indeed. Yeah, so I, I think there is a view, you know, if the UK could behave as I think we instinctively would like to behave and instinctively as our friends would want us to behave, we would be in a very good place. Uh, as it is, I think people looking into us see us as being slightly distracted for obvious reasons uh, over the course of the last, you know, uh, last 
two years. Uh, and we need to put that behind us and get back and show focus. And I think, as I said earlier, uh, uh, leadership. Yeah, okay, fine. Here's one which I think all of you can answer, but I think maybe more, more you, Natalie, but, but, but certainly Peter and James as well. It's on EU-NATO relations. It's a very general question from Ewan about, about, the, about the relationship. How will it evolve? You, you, you sounded quite optimistic in some of the ways you were talking. How will that also relate? Can they work together to kind of come to a unified position, if at all? say, on China and technological security, do you think? The Huawei, the 5G issue, obviously. Do you want to pick that one up? No, I mean, I, I actually think um, that to the extent that we will uh, keep our eye on the ball as Europeans, again, mm. not as you, as Europeans, on security and defence, um, we will continue to strengthen the EU-NATO relationship uh, simply because of the... Um, I mean, it, it, it is it is such a good fit, you know, it is such a good fit precisely because the areas that we are both increasing, I mean, on the one hand, as I said, on the, uh, on the harder stuff, uh, the EU can provide those financial incentives, uh, legal and institutional incentives for Europeans to do more on defence. Uh, and this is basically where PESCO on the fund come, come in. Uh, which is something that, if, if produced, does not belong to the European Union. It belongs to those member states that have actually put in the money together to do something. Uh, and if they are NATO members, well, then this is also NATO. Uh, it is a capability which goes to the benefit of NATO too. So this is where there is complementarity on the hard stuff. On, on the soft we, we know already, and this has been a story for, for a long time, the way in which NATO has been trying to move into the, uh, the hybrid, the cyber, uh, the, the anti-terrorism, etc. And we know that this is the stuff that the EU is good at. Um, so, you know, to the extent that we manage to keep our focus on security and defense, I have no doubts whatsoever that the relationship will continue to strengthen. Where my doubts come in is if as Europeans, we will drop the ball on security and defense for reasons that have to do with the post-COVID recovery. Uh, this is, to me, the risk that stands out, which means that it's not only EU defense that is going to do more, it's NATO, obviously, that's going to suffer as a result of it. And if both the EU and NATO suffer as a result of it, then inevitably there is going to be less uh, uh, sort of, you know, the, the terrain on which the cooperation takes place is actually going to thin. Hmm. I'll, I'll let Peter and James come in later on that, but I, it also segues into another question about economics. It's bound to, as everybody has pointed out, and you indicated it yourself, uh, Natalie, the economic consequences of COVID are depression-like. And there's no question, look at the figures of unemployment in the United States, its impact on the world economy generally. Uh, this is massive. And therefore, the question of resources comes up. And the whole question of who pays capabilities economics is an essential part of the debate about NATO who pays? That's been part of the question that President Trump has been asking, is it not? The Europeans don't pay enough. And one of the questions we got, I think, from Mohammed here in London was, um, well, what are the economic pressures going to look like? Let's just say, let's speculate in a year's time. All the talk about Europeans paying more, maybe adding a bit more, all that's going to go out the window because, as I think one or two of you have already emphasized, the key issue is not going to be 
are we going to spend more on defense? The key issue is, can we get an economic recovery? And the deficit spending that is going on now would make even John Maynard Keynes blush. So, you know, it, it is, you know what I mean? I, it's really enormous. It's just beyond any, even way beyond 2008. And everybody thought that was pretty radical, particularly looking at what happened in the United States. So I just want all of you to reflect on that. Is it really going to be any money around to do many of the things that many people have been talking about, say, for the last two or three years? James, you're smiling, so I'm going to bring you in first. No, Mick, I think if for those that understand the NATO defence planning process and the uh, shortfalls in um, capability areas, and likewise, uh, CARD and PESCO, I mean, a lot of rhetoric around it, but I think I, I read in a report by the EU's own internal uh, capability analysis team that, you know, the delivery is going to be more prosaic. Uh, I mean, it is a challenge. Uh, uh, and this is why I, I would come back uh, to uh, NATO's strategy, NATO's uh, new concept, because uh, while we wait for defence budgets to recover, which may take some time, actually DDA is about thinking differently, not necessarily spending more. Uh, and I think in the short term, we can make a huge impact with what we've got, recognising that I do not believe uh, there's going to be pots of cash around. Mm. OK, Peter? Uh, I I wonder whether we're in danger of um, being trapped by self-fulfillings here. Um, being trapped by what? Sorry, I didn't quite hear that. Self-fulfilling prophecies. Okay. Um, so, you know, I've heard a number of people say that... Um, as a result of the, the fiscal pressures coming out of COVID-19, it is inevitable, they say, it is inevitable that the defence budget will be cut, the British one, and it's inevitable that all the other ones will be cut as well. And I think one should push back against that. I mean, actually, defence expenditure is a very small part now of total national budgets compared with what it was in the 1950s and even 1960s and even 70s. So it doesn't strike me as necessarily particularly rational to, um, you know, take a swipe at one of the smaller bits of your national budget. Mm. Um, and we know, though, that after 2008, that is precisely what many countries did. I mean, there was a uh, reduction in defence budgets in most of the European and, uh, and indeed uh, the Canadian member of, of, of NATO and that was one of the reasons why um, back in 2011, before anyone had heard of President Trump, um, the then uh, American uh, Defense uh, Secretary was uh, complaining about the Europeans not um, doing their bit. Mm. Um, so um, I think that, you know, we need to think very hard before we just sort of apply a sort of automatic equal mm. misery approach to our national budgets. I think particularly uh, in current circumstances, which are very, very different, strategic circumstances, which are very, very different from that in 2008-9, um, the European members of NATO would be sending a very bad message indeed to, to Washington, and they, mm. and they should reflect on this carefully. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reflecting on your point. Was there ever a time then anybody had ever heard of Donald Trump? I'd heard about him much earlier than 2011, but anyway... <laughs> Silly TV programs in the United States. There you go, uh, Natalie. What's your what's your take on the economics of all this? Are you a bit more pessimistic than Peter? Seems a bit more upbeat. I, I am more pessimistic. I mean, I agree that it shouldn't happen. Uh, I just fear that it will happen. Uh, and even if 
uh, you know, rationally, it should not be the case uh, for reasons that uh, both Peter and James were highlighting, meaning in any case, we're not talking about a huge percentage of, uh, of the budget. Uh, and actually, it is an important <laughs> uh, bit of, of the budget. But politically, it's, uh, it's a highly, it's a small but highly politicized uh, part of the bu budget. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, it's very easy for this to get caught up uh, in the sort of um, haywire of, uh, of political debate. I think, you know, to be honest, a lot of it will depend on the broader impact that COVID-19 is going to have on politics more than on economics. Now, what I mean by this is that if, and again, let me try and be positive on this. Um, if one can make the assumption, uh, which uh, of course we would probably all uh, in this panel and probably everyone listening uh, to this event uh, hope for, i.e. that COVID-19 actually has in many respects um, or could represent a blow to populism. Why could it represent a blow to populism? Because it's been the ultimate demonstration that actually you need to have expertise and competence in order to deal with complex policy questions, such as a pandemic. So if this is, if the, the, the kind of leadership that is going to become politically appealing post-COVID and during COVID is actually not the radical, uh, extreme, populist, nationalist brand, but it's rather the uh, rational, rather moderate, perhaps a bit boring, uh, sort of reliable leadership with obviously different, you know, sort of the, the, that plays out differently depending on different national cultures and circumstances, et cetera. Uh, and of course, the, the answer to this question, we're only going to begin to see with the results uh, in, in, in elections. So it's not going to be clear for some time. But anyway, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that if it is a more rational type of leadership, if the political season that essentially opened with the global financial crisis, uh, which should have it should have led to real policy change and it didn't and because it didn't it fueled nationalism populism across the west uh, if if that season is over because this crisis is a lot worse and given that it's a lot worse we really do have to change quite a few things yeah? uh, and it could lead to the end of that political season then i'm slightly more optimistic that rational mm. arguments such as the ones being made by James and Peter are going to be better heard. Mm. That's a big, I mean, just to come back on you, Natalie, if you don't mind, I mean, it's a, that's a big if, though, isn't it? Oh, a huge if, absolutely. I mean, all, all the indicators are that nationalism is on the increase, self-reliance, going back to the nation-state as the, as, as the principal means of security in the, in the health sense, the, the fundamental sense of security, namely life, in the kind of sense that Hobbes meant security. Yes, but, I, but at the same time, I think that, um, you know, that there, that there, are, there are things that are feasible, things that are not. Hmm? Yeah. I think that we're going to be able to roll back globalization back to the nation state. Mm. I do think that there will be an extent of rolling back. And this is why I mentioned a more regionalized globalization. Yeah. So there will yeah. be greater redundancies. There will be some reshoring, but there can't be reshoring in each and every uh, state mm world huh? mm. uh, so again it's you know there has to be a change if there isn't a change then we're back to the season that we were in pre-covid and i don't think that that's the case so yes mm. you're right it's a huge if um but i think that the circumstances are so dire that it's worth mm. considering that if
Mm-mm-mm. Okay. I've got a question here, a more general question, really, from a friend of ours called Lutfi Siddiqui, who's part of NSC Ideas, uh, living down in Singapore. And he's asked a, he's asked a number of questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and put it into one. From a perspective, is this really an alliance or is it really a series of transactional agreements? In other words, hasn't Trump, getting back to the Trump dimension, hasn't he made transactionalism respectable? And what are the things that really unite? What do they fundamentally agree? And we can talk about values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When push comes to shove, isn't it the case, and this gets back to your point about the existential crisis, Peter, on the fundamental issues, there's not always agreement. Indeed, there may be fundamental disagreement. So what we're talking about really is not an alliance, but maybe a transactional relationship. James, do you want to have a go at that one? Um, when you're in it, it feels very much like uh, an alliance. Uh, and I think uh, one has to look very much at what the US do rather than what they tweet uh, or uh, is necessarily said. Uh, and when you look at their investment into Europe over the last three years, uh, it is significant. And also it's diversified. You know, it isn't necessarily mass you, you need, but big investment in ISR, space ISR, soft capacity building, missile defense, joint fires. And so, you know, the US have tailored their presence in Europe uh, to fight what they believe to be uh, the fight that may come their way. Uh, and I don't see any, and in my three years, uh, didn't see any backsliding on that. So so I get the fact that it's very difficult to, to sense that when you read the constant dialogue uh, in the press, but, but that feels to be the reality for me. On, in the inside, yeah. Peter, what about your views on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, um, probably James has more experience of NATO than I do, but um, I... You know, I used, you know, for the best part of five years, I would go with the defense secretary and sometimes the prime minister to NATO meetings. So, you know, very much involved at the at the more political end. And it didn't feel like just a series of transactions to me. Um, I was often quite impressed by the sort of sense of, you know, unity and enduring purpose and values and so on that would <clears throat> emerge round the table. Um, I mean, NATO has rather formal meetings when the, when the ministers sit round that big table, uh, but it also, the ministers uh, get together in a slight, slightly less formal uh, way uh, on other occasions, uh, where there is a slight, where there is a more free-flowing um, conversation, and you do get that sense in those conversations of the shared values and the, the longer-term perspective. Of course, there are always some transactions you know, there are deals that have to be done um, in that, you know, if one country is going to put more effort into um, an operation in one area, it would like some assurances that it might get some support from another country for an operation that's, you know, important to it for some reason or another. That sort of stuff goes on all the time. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't make too much of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, on the suggestion, I think I saw it on one of the other questions, that, mm. you know, on all the big issues, the two mm. sides of the Atlantic are always apart. Mm. I, mean, I don't think that's true. Um, mm. I mean, Natalie mentioned Libya. I mean, the Americans chose not to lead from the front in Libya, but they were not against what um, Britain, France, Italy and other countries were seeking to achieve. And indeed, they provided quite a lot of, of support. Um, on Russia, Ukraine, you know, there hasn't been a, 
uh, transatlantic divide on that, as, as James has just said. And even on some of the more difficult episodes, you know, like Iraq, uh, there hasn't been a single European view. Um, mm. So, you know, there was the, like the divide was actually through Europe. It wasn't along the middle of the Atlantic. So um, I think it's a bit simple. I, I, would, I wouldn't, uh, it's a nice phrase, but I wouldn't agree with it. Okay. And Natalie? We want some pessimism now, do we? <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm actually. Well, I'm. I'm. I think there's more of a question mark here, and I think the question mark really has to do less with NATO and more with the way in which the United States understands its role in the world. I mean, I think it's worth reflecting on what is the difference between transactionalism and uh, a, a more genuinely multilateral uh, or even bilateral approach. Huh? It doesn't have to be multilateral necessarily. And, and, and the difference really is that, um, you know, whether in a particular exchange, the only thing that you're interested in is what the direct payoff from that particular exchange is, which is basically what transactionalism is, or whether you embedded within a broader, a more diffuse sense of, of reciprocity, where indeed you may lose uh, uh, from transaction A, but if it, this is for the greater good of the overall institutional context within which you're undertaking that transaction, you calculate that this is actually in your uh, uh, national interest. Now, in order to have that mindset, if you're the relative hegemon of that institution, so if you're the United States, you need to understand yourself as a leader. Uh, and this is where it is very clear that this particular US administration does not understand itself as the leader of a particular in international system. It doesn't give a damn about Thanks, Natalie. Your, your, your sound system came across quite dare I say it quite loud then, not your voice, but the, the sound system itself. But I think we got the general point, the general point being, and, and in a way, I think you've got a slightly different take to James and Peter, unless, unless I'm, I'm looking for nuanced differences which don't exist. Um, I think you take the view, if, if I get it right, that Trump has made much more of a difference. And I, I get the impression from James and Peter a little bit that it, it, it's business as usual and, it's, and, and ignore the tweets. That's, am I picking that up wrong, Peter or James? I mean, you, you seem that that's my interpretation of what you're saying, maybe an, un, a, an unfair one. I would. I think you might be. Um, Sorry, James. You, 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 might, you might have got it slightly wrong. Um, I mean, as I said in my opening remarks, I think we do have to accept that the transatlantic relationship is changing. Um, mm. And, um, you know, of course, James is right that, you know, you, you judge people by what they do and not what they tweet. Um, but the, the president, at least when he was the president-elect, you know, said certain things about NATO, which, um, as I said, you cannot entirely unsay. Mm. And so the, and if you put that alongside the structural changes that I mentioned, mm. um, then it does seem to me that that relationship is changing. Um, mm. And that's why, um, you know, leaving aside arguments for, you know, European strategic autonomy, whether that's a good word or a bad word, that is why, you know, the European members of NATO need to do a lot more. Mm, because mm. if they rely 
if the credibility of NATO's deterrence posture is completely dependent on European on an American participation, then I think that's not a good place to be anymore because mm. certain doubts have been raised about whether that participation would be as automatic as it was in Austria. So, yes. you know, I'm somewhere in between, I suspect, James and Natalie. Okay. All right, James? <laughs> uh, no, I just made the observation that for a president who, uh, as Peter said, uh, spoke ill things about NATO, actually his pressure has driven NATO in a good direction in terms of additional defence spending. Um, and I think, yes, there's probably more American management going on in Brussels than has been in the past. Uh, there's been a debate about an outward and inward looking America for as long as I can remember. But in large part, your summary of it looks like business as usual at the coalface is true. Trump's popularity in Europe still remains remarkably low, though, James, and therefore public opinion and issues of images of the United States, which have not been improved, let's be perfectly honest, by the hand of the COVID crisis, getting back to what's in the title. Doesn't that also have an impact? I think that's a really important point, and, and I try to allude to it in my introductory mm. remarks, that, that you see so little effort by the European governments to educate their populations on the nature of the threat. And I think this is uh, an Achilles heel for uh, the alliance, because if people don't understand the threat, why do they want to see their resources committed to uh, exactly. defending it? Yeah, and that gets back to the, econom the economic question. I'll bring you in later on, uh, Natalie, on that one, if you want to. I've had a, a, a very, well, they've all been interesting questions, I think. Uh, one on Turkey. We haven't, met, we haven't discussed Turkey yet from Anne-Maria Palati, who's an alumni, I think, of LSE. Welcome, Anna, Maria. Uh, on Turkey, could you just say a bit more? On, is, Turkey is still a member of NATO, we, formally speaking, but sometimes some of its actions indicate uh, a problematic relationship, we might say, generally with, with the West or, or with, uh, with NATO. Do you want to, There's a hot potato. Who wants to pick up that hot potato? I think it's a good one. Natalie, why don't you start? Okay, hopefully I'm not going to start booming out like I did last no, time. It wasn't your voice, it was, the, it was your system. <laughs> it was structural. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, so let me go back to structure. I mean, there, there have always been disagreements between uh, Turkey and... You're a bit too soft now, Natalie. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there have always been disagreements, you know, between Turkey and uh, be it, you know, the European Union, be it its NATO allies... But the question is that those disagreements were always, in the past, uh, they were framed within a particular international context in which Turkey was firmly embedded, which basically saw Turkey as being uh, part and having an interest uh, in that order that I was referring to earlier. Now, and this is why I come back to US leadership. Uh, if and so to me, the million dollar question is, is actually what happens in the United States. It's not what happens in Turkey or in the European Union. If we're going to have a United States that not only under Trump, but, you know, where we're going to see this as being a more structural trend in the United States, the United States being less present in our part of the world, then it's going to be uh, that those disagreements that already existed uh, and that have in the past existed between Turkey uh, and uh, the European Union, between Turkey and the United States, are going to tip over uh, to the to, to tip over the breaking point, and it's going to become 
far easier in a world which is not uh, more or less characterized by a degree of hegemony by the United States for Turkey to come unhinged. Huh? Uh, and uh, I, I don't see a Turkey-Russia alliance materializing, but yes, I do see a more transactional Turkish approach towards Russia or towards China or towards anyone else, because ultimately Turkey, it sort of deep down has always kind of felt a bit of a lone wolf. Huh? It's uh, sort of very much part of the national uh, psyche. And if it's not embedded within a broader context, those disagreements are going to be far easier to, to, to tip over, basically. Um, so again, I think it has more to do with what, how the United States will understand its own role in the world than the specifics of Turkey or, or uh, Europeans. Okay, thanks. Uh, Peter or James? James, do you want to come in first on that one on Turkey? Yeah, I'd say I think uh, the Turkey-US, Turkey-NATO, that's a complicated uh, relationship. It too often gets uh, confused, which is uh, a problem. Uh, I agree with Natalie. I mean, we've had problems in the alliance before. Uh, normally, these people always come back into the fold, and I think Turkey will. I mean, Turkey are, in many ways, a, a brilliant ally, very strong army. If you went to war, you want them on your left flank. And I tell you, if you issue a 200-page document on a Friday uh, afternoon, uh, Ankara are back with their 20 questions on Monday morning when most nations haven't even got around to reading it. So, so I'm a huge <laughs> admirer of Turkey. You just need to uh, you know, treat them with uh, absolute respect. Indeed, there was a very good message that came out from a Brit in Ankara saying that too many people forgot the second and third rules of dealing with Turkey. Respect, respect, respect being the three rules. Uh, if you get that right, you tend to be all right. Okay, that's clear, forthright, and unambiguous. Mm -hmm. Do you want to introduce a bit of ambiguity into the question, into <laughs> the answer, Peter? No, I think I'm broadly with what's been said. Um, I mean, Turkey does have some distinct interests in its part of the world, yeah. and they have led to some um, <clears throat> difficulties. Um, I think Turkey also feels that uh, many of its... Um, allies rather take it for granted. Mm. Um, they, um, it felt that not many countries were very sympathetic uh, when it found itself in a rather very difficult situation with Russia um, mm. in late 2015 with the shoot down incident. Um, I'm glad to say that this, this country, the UK, was sympathetic. And I think that's one of the reasons why I still have a very good image in, in Ankara. Mm. But um, you know, there is a there is a perhaps a tendency, as I think as one of my colleagues has just said, uh, in Ankara at times to go it alone, and that is not a positive tendency. Um, mm. And my view has always been that we should be seeking to counteract that by working as closely as we can with Turkey, uh, rather than appearing to push it away. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually I do agree with what James has said. I think also I wonder, James, whether there's some deeper cultural issues involved here. You know, Turkey never gets a good press. Um, it may even go back to the Ottoman Empire. Who knows? Uh, there may be some long historical reasons for the way in which there's always a negative image of Turkey, sometimes justified, probably often not. I've got a nice question now from all three of you. I think it's a nice question from Tim. How can NATO think strategically when you have elections? In other words, is it easier for the you know authoritarian systems to think strategically because you get much more stable leadership, qua Russia, qua China, whereas 
for democratic countries which have elections, which have a public opinion. Let's make, let's be blunt, a very, very uh, uh, tough press, particularly in this country. Uh, what, what does it mean to think strategically and can you do it in the framework of a, of a vibrant, dynamic, argumentative, noisy democracy? Anybody want to go with that one first? Peter, I think you, went, you, you raised your eyebrows there. Okay. Well, I think the answer is yes, um, but it's not easy yes, as it were, mm. um, because one of the reasons why you can think strategically is because, I mean, I know this sounds a bit clear, but you are facing strategic threats. I mean, they are mm. threats to, in one way or another, the European order or whatever. And those threats are what they are, regardless of, um, as it were, political churn within individual member states. The other reason why I would say yes is that in most countries in um, the alliance, um, defence and security policy tends not to be a deeply divisive political issue. I mean, there tends to be quite a high degree of uh, consensus. I mean, that's not always the case. I mean, there was a, a period um, in this country when, you know, the parties were deeply divided on, on nuclear deterrence, for example. Um, but I think it's as a general rule, and certainly this was my observation um, going to those meetings that I mentioned, that one didn't see dramatic re re reversals of policy if there'd been a shift in defence minister from one party to another. So from that perspective, I would say, yes, you can think strategically. Um, the slight caveat I would add is that um, if you have political cultures where people are, you know, more concerned with scoring points and, you know, undermining the media or, you know, doing things on, you know, with tweeting and so on, uh, that can make it quite difficult. Um, yeah. <laughs> any any organisation, you know, like NATO with 30 members, um, uh, which for which its cohesion is a key element, they do rely pretty heavily on, you know, quiet diplomacy, influencing and negotiation. And mm. it's not always helpful if um, all the possibilities have been excluded in advance um, by a sort of off-the-cuff political exchange. Okay, we're, we're, we're on our last question now. So I'm going to bring Natalie in and then James for last comments. So Natalie on that same question and then finally James. Natalie. Um, so firstly, I'd say that, uh, yes, of course, authoritarian systems have fewer domestic constraints in formulating and pursuing strategy. But I think that even authoritarian countries actually do have to an extent to respond to public opinion. So they, they have fewer constraints, but they, they're not devoid of constraints uh, at all. Um, but, but more importantly, I would say that the fact that democracies have uh, uh, far more uh, domestic constraints does not make them unable to formulate an or pursue strategy. It's certainly more difficult, but it's possible. The United States, going back <laughs> to, 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 to the same example, uh, is a country that um, formulates strategy. Now, we can agree or disagree with it. We can think that it's more or less effective, that it's a good or a bad strategy. But it has had and it has acted strategically for decades. And I don't think that anyone would doubt the fact that the United States is a democracy. So the question is, what is it that uh, makes um, 
some countries act strategically and others not. I don't mm-hmm. think it's their political system. I think, and here, and this is why I go back to autonomy. If you think that what you're going to pursue, the goals that you're going to set for yourself, the means that you're going to uh, uh, sort of, you know, have to, 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 to pursue those goals are actually not going to have an impact to what your, your goal actually actually is, it's very difficult to get in the mindset of strategy. Mm-hmm. If you're not autonomous, and if you know you're not autonomous, you're simply not in that cultural mindset, which is why I think that it is important for us to move in that direction. And it's not something that we're going to achieve overnight. It's very clear. It's something that we can achieve at the best over a couple of decades. We need to get into that frame of mind because to give, and here I'll end, just a final example, which is not defense-related, um, let's take sanctions. Let's take uh, Iran sanctions. Br- br- briefly, if you could, Natalie. Don't, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we uh, want to defend the JCPOA, but we're unable to do so because we're subject to secondary sanctions by the United States, mm. what, is, what is the point of investing in an entire process if we, you then end up acting against your own goal? And this is why the whole debate of economic sovereignty come, comes in. You know, so it's not only defence. Okay. Sorry, Nat, I just wanted to go. Uh, James, I think you have the last word. Well, I think on the strategy point, there's that great thing, you know, how do you eat the elephant? You know, one mouthful at a time. And it is difficult in NATO. I think SecGen and IS staff are very attuned to what is going to fly and what isn't going to fly. Uh, if you're going to launch something new, something like DDA, you end up visiting all 30 capitals, you speak to all the policy directors, you build it bottom up, you make sure you've got consensus. What I like about NATO's strategy is that the discussion that leads to consensus means that actually the commitment that under, underpins that strategy tends to be rock solid. Mm. So it takes you time to get there, but when you get there, people will make it happen. Uh, that, for me, is, is, is good. And, of course, in a crisis, you know, the alliance can move very quickly because many of these... Committees that like to discuss these issues uh, drop away, uh, and you get people like Saka working direct to the NAT, and you're off. James, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to bring this uh, wonderful session uh, to an end. Firstly, I'd like to thank all the questioners. I couldn't bring everybody in, but I tried to get a, 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 a broad cross-section of the questions. Uh, so thank, thanks to all you for listening and to watching. Uh, thanks to events here at LSE are doing a great job who are putting on an enormous number of of great discussions on webinars, and I think doing a wonderful service, not only for the LSE, but also for the broader community, and and indeed, I hope, for the world at large. I'd like to thank all the people in Ideas who have worked very, very hard to bring this together. We do have future events coming up, so look on our web pages. We've got lots of things coming up on Africa and on many, many other things beside but most of all, perhaps, uh, to thank our three speakers today, Natalie Tocci from Italy, James and Peter here from the UK. So thank you very much to everybody. And we look forward to meeting and speaking with you again very soon. Good afternoon.